Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. So yeah, we are discussing Davy Crockett, King of the Final Final Frontier. I mean, I made a Star Trek thing. King of the Wild Frontier. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's like a soup. That'd be a cool sci-fi mashup. Davy Cyborg, King of the Final Frontier. <laughs> so it was kind of funny too. Is like so. Last week with the Buccaneer, we talked about the War of eighteen twelve and Andrew Jackson. And this week, we'll be talking about the War of eighteen twelve and Andrew Jackson. But right, last yeah. time I was focusing on Jean Lafitte. This time I was focusing on Davy Crockett. We always like, kind of like to bridge the gap between, especially in these early episodes where we might might take big decade jumps in our timeline. No big jump here to start off, but on the other end, we kind of will be. We'll be talking about more than two decades of American history today, and then next time we'll actually kind of backtrack to talk about some of the stuff that happened in between, just because we're, we're talking about a big chunk of Davy crockett's life and i logan i mentioned to you off air right that this was a surprisingly good choice for our project here better than i anticipated because i didn't think i mean spoiler alert we're going to talk about the whole movie here but i didn't realize we were going to get to the alamo i didn't know the alamo was part of this movie like i didn't know we were going to get I didn't either his, um, yeah we basically get his whole life in that in that sense right so i was like i, I was almost before we before we watched this yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that it covered basically his entire adult life. I so I was I was thinking like, oh, should we do like even though they're not very good, do either like the 1960 John Wayne Alamo movie or like the 2004 uh, Dennis Quaid and Billy Bob Thornton uh, Alamo movie? But then yeah, w- after I watched this, I'm like, oh, we don't have to. We don't have to watch either of those because this covers the Alamo anyway. Right. We basically got a better version of the Alamo. We we just got the short film version. Again, it's not great, but it's probably better than those other versions of the Alamo that are out there. So yeah, this movie in general is actually kind of interesting. So this was actually a mini series that Disney put out in the 1950s, just on television, and then it was received well enough. They put these three episodes together and did release it theatrically. So this was a theatrical release, but you could, it definitely feels like a TV show in the sense that. It's almost three short films about Davy Crockett, just back to back to back, about nine, about thirty minutes each. Right. The, you can even tell where the splits are because they have that very, you know, nineteen fifties adventure show thing where they start the show with a song <laughs> about the guy, and then they at the end of the show they like sing the rest of the song. Yes, and he, like that happens three times throughout this movie. Right, where they sing the song about Davy Crockett, you know, <laughs> and they're they like back up against each other. It's like, oh, okay, this is where the second one started. Okay, this is where the third one started. They basically just stop, or they they basically stop just short of mid movie credit rolling and then going into the next episode. Like, there's all but opening credits again as they start the second and third phase, and then uh, so. Right. A couple of funny things here. So, you know, I was talking to my parents that, you know, about that we were getting ready to do this. And this was a show my dad watched when he was little. But he also got confused because 
I guess Fess Parker here also played Daniel Boone just like five, ten years later in a different TV series. Right. And so my dad was even confused on which was which. Right. Daniel Boone, who's the other famous American historical figure that's famous for wearing a coonskin cap. Yeah. Yeah. Both played by Fess Parker. Yeah. Right. And probably the the coonskin cap, well, at least in Davy Crockett's case, might be... Like not Less accurate? necessarily accurate. Like it was more of a Daniel Boone thing. Well, I I don't know about Daniel Boone, oh, but okay. I know like for Davy Crockett, the his iconic coonskin cap was actually a product of someone playing a character based on him in a Broadway show who wore that as part of his costume, and that became very popular. And then like the artwork from that became very popular. And then in the television show, they had him wear a coonskin cap. And so that's where we get this, like... So we don't even know if he did, really. It's not, yeah. Right, not to say that he didn't. Like, he, he might have. He, he probably did. But, like, that wasn't necessarily, like, something that he was known for at the time. Well, then that kind of fits, though, with the whole mystique of him. And, and obviously, we'll, we'll get to this here a little later when you kind of detail it. But, like, when he goes to D.C. and, like, he's already this nationally known figure with all these stories about him. And he even kind of mentions in the show, like... Well, yeah, those, that stuff's not all really true. But that all kind of makes sense. We've talked about Wyatt Earp and stuff in the past where these legends on the frontier, these people would kind of, these stories would sell, but they didn't have to be right. true necessarily. And so you became this larger-than-life legend in your own lifetime, and it's even kind of hard to parse what's accurate and what's not. A couple more quick notes just about the show itself. Uh, it is on Rotten Tomatoes, a 100 77 but that 100 is with only six critics reviewing it. And random little tidbit, my mom just kind of casually dropped that, oh, yeah, uh, Uncle Jack was roommates with Fess Parker for a little bit. So my Uncle Jack, who was an actor oh. at, the same, at the same time period, apparently, like, in the late 40s, early 50s, was roommates with Fess Parker. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's a small freaking world. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, I, I don't have any more stories than that. I guess I could ask his son, but so that's yeah. It's fun. So we we both kind of have family connections to this story then, because I have uh well I, maybe I'll bring it up later, or maybe we can talk about it now. I think it's my mom's. So my, my grandma, on my mom's side, her great grandfather or great great grandfather married a Crockett. Oh, okay. Who is from? The line of Crockett's obviously the same line of Crockett's that Davy Crockett is from. So Davy Crockett could could be a distant cousin of yours if we could actually figure out how to draw the line, kind of thing. Yeah. So I I traced it back, and I I don't know. Should we should we talk about this now, or should I talk about it after we talk about him? Whatever you think fits best. All right. We're talking about it now since you just mentioned your, your okay. family connection to this. I'll just, and yeah, you're gonna you're gonna trump me. I'll be like, I I have an uncle who was a uh, roommates with an actor who played David Crockett. You're like David Crockett's my cousin. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of it's it's pretty distant. So <laughs> when I looked up, so there's this article or this I, I don't know, it's some like a like a news story written about this guy john f harrison who at the time of writing had the largest family in audrain county missouri okay and in this write-up about him they say that he was married to the daughter of john d and mary crockett which is true and that her father's father was samuel crockett who's the son of hugh crockett that's all true 
But then it says Hugh Crockett is a son of Davy Crockett, which is not true. Gotcha. Um, so when I actually went back and traced the ancestry, it looks like if the way that I researched this was correct, and if all of the genealogy websites that I was on were correct, it looks like it would be Davy Crockett's great-grandfather was, it's like one of his brothers is the Crockett line that this Belle Crockett, who married uh, John F. Harrison, like that's her line. Okay, almost like a second cousin, three or eight times removed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't even know how, how the relation is, but uh, yeah. And actually, I just, in this write-up to it, it talks about this guy, John F. Harrison, his his kind of life story. So he was a, uh, he enlisted in the Confederate Army in 1861. Uh, he was, a, it says, fought the Battle of Wilson's Creek, fought numerous battles, Pea Ridge and Vicksburg. At Vicksburg, he was shot in the head. They thought he was dead, so it, he got taken off the battlefield. Turns out he was alive. Participated in a number of other fights. Finally surrendered at Shreveport, Louisiana in 1865. Was taken prisoner with 800 other guys, and they were sent on a steamboat. And then the, steam, the steamboat sunk, and several hundred of them drowned. But he was able to make it to shore, and then just went back to Missouri and, like, took up farming. <laughs> <laughs> crazy, crazy. But, anyway. Oh, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is, uh, it was kind of interesting, too, just, just thinking about the frontier at this time. And it's, I don't know, I guess, honestly, this is a time period I've never thought too much about. You know, we're used to the Wild West of the late 1800s. We forget that it wasn't the Wild West in the same way in the early to mid-1800s. It was the, front quote, frontier, which referred to just... right you know, roughly the Mississippi area and basically everything west of the Appalachian Mountains that was kind of becoming new territory where people were expanding out into. So the Wild West wasn't right. yet a thing, but it was still a, almost a similar kind of mindset. But instead of, you know, dusty open Arizona plains or whatever, it's mountainous wilderness, but it is still that frontier mindset. And right. people like Davy Crockett yeah. kind of were early people to go out that way. And then one quick note before we kind of then let you talk about Davy Crockett here. His friend throughout, George Russell, uh, Georgie Russell, is fictional. So he, I, I don't know. You'll probably be able to talk more about maybe other possible friends of, of David Crockett. And he's played by Buddy Epson, which is a name I recognize, but I had to look it up to realize, like, oh, he's like the dad, Jed Clampett, on the Beverly Hillbillies, which was a little before oh, my time, okay. too. But like, I'm like, oh, that's why I know that name. Okay. But yeah, so like the, the show is divided up into three segments. The first one deals with right before, right around the War of 1812 with a lot of these battles we talked about with the Red Sticks. Of course, they actually go a step farther and just make the main chief they are fighting. They call him Red Stick, which is inaccurate, right. but he it would, right. it would be the Red Stick tribe or the subset of the Greeks, the Red Sticks that they were fighting. Right. Um, and then we get into Davies' time in D.C. and then the Alamo. So... I could talk a little bit more, maybe, about the Red Stick side of things, but why don't you start us off with who's Davy Crockett, where did he come from, and how does he get to where he's in a position to be helping Jackson against the the Creek Indians, or specifically the Red Sticks? Yeah, so I'm going to go back a little yes. a little far. So his family, his lineage, um, is actually traced back to Huguenot French. Yeah, the, the Huguenots, 
Huguenots? I don't know. Is that which which way is correct? That's honestly, it's a France France thing. So it's like technically the French oh. would not pronounce it Huguenot, but they also don't say France. So do with that what okay. you will. Okay, so uh, I'm just, I'm going to use Huguenot then and just really Americanize it. Uh, so Huguenots, the their last name was actually like de Crocaton or like something like that. It was like a, a very French sounding name. They immigrated to Ireland. Uh, that's where the name changed to Crockett. And then uh, so that's and then from Ireland came to the United States or I, I guess at the time would have been the, uh, you know, the British colony. But he was uh, David Crockett was born in uh, August of 1786, actually the 17th. So we're recording this on the 14th. So almost uh, oh. <laughs> almost exactly his birthday. What would that be? Yeah, almost exactly his birthday. He was born in uh, North Carolina, even though it's present day Tennessee. Tennessee hadn't, it wasn't a, a state yet. So basically, like, if you look at it on a map, how Tennessee looks like it kind of like fits right, you know, next to North Carolina. Basically, it used to be part of North Carolina, just extended yeah. all the way across. But uh, his father was a uh, veteran of the Revolutionary War. Um, he actually, his dad fought at the Battle of Kings Mountain, which we didn't talk about in any of the uh our american revolution episodes but uh it was a battle that was fought in 1780 between loyalist militia and a patriot militia so it was called the largest all-american fight of the war oh it was colonists versus colonists yeah right yeah it was all colonists the uh patriot militia was actually kind of like on its heels and kind of made this like last ditch effort Basically, to keep the loyalists from being able to recruit, they like attacked them, and they killed the the British guy who was actually the leader of that loyalist militia. And because of like their victory, and specifically the fact that they were able to kill the leader of this militia, it made the it basically like, turned the tide of the southern campaign. Um, for the war oh wow okay so i i that was that's a little uh a little like connection to you know our, our, our previous episodes there no absolutely yeah as a child he had basically no formal education it shows in the show <laughs> yeah i so i read i read some stuff that was it was like i don't know how much of it is like actually true or if it was like from his like ghost written autobiographies but basically it said that like he would go to school and he got in a fight at school it was like didn't want to get in trouble by the teacher so he would just like walk to school with his siblings and then like they would go to school and he would just go hang out in the woods and like do you know fight bears <laughs> yeah fight bears you know hunt you know what whatever he was doing in the woods and then would get you know pick up his his siblings after the school day was over and then go back home and did that like for so I I don't know if that's true or not, but I just thought that that was like kind of a, a fun story. So because of that, though, he, he couldn't read until he was like well into his teens. He was like he was. uh Yeah, eventually his dad did have him tutored to where he he did get, you know, a basic education, like learned how to read and write and do like basic addition subtraction. But that wasn't well into his teenage years. Yeah, basically, he, he spent his whole like childhood as a kid just like hanging out in the woods nice okay he married his first wife 
Polly, who's the one that we see in the movie, she died from malaria or some other disease. I don't think anyone knows for sure what it was. I saw some people say, oh, she died of a fever. Others said, you know, died of malaria. Either way, she got sick and died in 1815. They had three kids together. And then he married his second wife, Elizabeth, and had three more children. Although... We don't see her in the show. or Right. So we don't see Elizabeth at all. We see Polly and his kids uh, like a couple times. But then after she dies, he's like... A bachelor in the show, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, he gets like... He gets a letter that says, uh, your wife is dead and we took in your sons. And he's like, oh man, that, that's a bummer. And then just like go, <laughs> keeps doing whatever it was he was doing. Well, they jump forward a couple decades <laughs> at that point. Just don't touch about, talk about his personal relationships ever again. Right. It doesn't really seem like he was very involved in his family life anyway. He was like constantly gone. Like he Which was, was way more common at the time. Right, he like he leaves to go fight in the Creek Wars, and then he's gone in D.C. doing his uh, politician stuff, and then he goes to Texas, and like, yeah, all that time his family is back in Tennessee. Right, right. So, but yeah, he uh, joined the army as a scout and fought in the Creek Wars. Like we see, that's like the first thing that we see in the actual movie, which was a war between. Uh, it was like two factions of the Creek Indians. You had the Lower Creeks, and they were the ones that were aligned with the U.S. They wanted to kind of, you know... Assimilate and just wanted peace. Right. They wanted to assimilate. They wanted to adopt, you know, more of a westernized, Americanized, you know, society. They wanted to, yeah, assimilate. And the Upper Creeks, or what were called the Red Stick Creeks, were the ones that, you know, did not want... They wanted to, you know, preserve how they were living before and, you know, didn't want to have to, you know, as they saw it, bend the knee to the Americans. And so something that I didn't realize or notice until I read it somewhere in Louisiana, there's a city called Baton Rouge or Baton Rouge, which is Red Stick. Yeah. And it's named after these Red Stick Creek Indians. Okay. And I, so I knew that Baton Rouge meant red stick, but I actually couldn't find a connection that it was specifically named. Like, I was, I don't know if it was that or just a coincidence. Like, oh, like it's something else, like some other red stick. I saw it as like Baton Rouge is like, like it, like it was some other red stick, not necessarily. I, I, I couldn't actually find where it said it was named after this tribe. Oh, okay. Well, then maybe that was just me making a connection that's not like if you go to the wiki, you go to the Wikipedia page on Baton Rouge, it like doesn't mention it at all. It just says French for Red Stick, but it doesn't make any connection to why it would be named after this tribe. Oh, okay. I yeah, I don't know why, but I I mean, this... like I like I wanted to make that assumption, but I couldn't find the the link. So the the creeks would have been in this general area, like they were in you know Mississippi, Alabama, Florida Panhandle. Well, so you're right. It makes sense. It just it seems just seems weird that it wasn't mentioned on the Baton Rouge page. Then you know what? It might I I it, maybe it's not named after that because this says. French explorer leading the expeditionary party, uh, the explorers saw a red pole marking the boundary between two different tribal hunting grounds. That's what it was. So it is just, it's, okay, so never mind. It's just, yeah, it's another red stick. Because the red stick Indians were named after, like, these clubs that they had. These, like, red clubs. And th- b- so Baton Rouge, Louisiana is called red stick, but it's not, it has nothing to do, it's it, a red stick was sticking out of the ground that, uh, yeah, a dividing line between two tribes, and so they just called it Red Stick. Huh. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it, did you have, uh, like, other stuff about the Creek Wars that you wanted to talk about? I didn't... Uh, yeah, no, I did have a okay. couple of things. So, 
we mentioned that they have the chief of this group in the show. They just call him Red Stick, which is not accurate. But there were uh, there was one one major uh, Red Stick chief I wanted to mention that basically could be who this character was, if that makes sense. So oh, it wasn't okay. it wasn't called Red Stick, but there was a guy named William Weatherford, which sounds kind of very British because he actually was largely anglo-saxon or white with his background but he was like half or quarter uh creek indian he was also known as red eagle so you did have william weatherford aka red eagle who definitely could be who this they character they made red stick where he, he definitely was that and he kind of fits that role almost to the point where i'm like why not just call him red eagle because like that's also cool and just that much more historically accurate so where he's connected to this whole story, it does. I don't. They don't talk about it too much in the movie, but when they show the map where they're kind of panning across where some of this stuff is ha- is happening, you see Fort Mims shown on the map. Oh yeah, I I, I wrote something about. Were you were you, were you going to talk about that? Well, what I just okay. I didn't know if was that part of Davy's story. No no no. I I just have that. That was like one of the major events of the of the Creek Wars is Fort Mims attack in eighteen thirteen, and I. I don't remember. I I think they mentioned something about it in the show, but it was basically this massacre. This fort was attacked, and they basically got inside and just killed everyone, like men, women, children. Like hundreds of people were killed by the by the Creek Indians at Fort Mims. Right. So William Weatherford was like one of, if not the leader of that raid. Okay. Yes. That that was that. Honestly, that was kind of my only only uh, only thing to bring up there. The only thing I was going to say just about the show itself. There's definitely the whole 1950s problem of the natives are the faceless enemy and this, you know, the white people have to protect themselves. But there's also times where they probably do better than most things would have done in the 50s where Davy comes to the defense and says, right. well, they're folks, yeah. same as us. But it's kind of, it is all kind of colored with the idea of if they would just only civilize themselves and realize our ways are better, we would accept them. So there's definitely that tone to it, that their backwards native ways are savage, but them as a people are okay. And we're, it's, it's basically the same thing we've talked about when we get to Pocahontas and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of like entitlement too that they show where it's like the, it's like, well, you just have to stop like attacking these settlers and then there won't be a problem. And it, the, the Indians are like, uh, yes. that was our land that they're settling. Like, they're basically invading us. Like, yeah, we're attacking the settlements because that's <laughs> our, like, that's our territory. Right. It's like a family sets up a tent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like if, well, if you just, le- if you just leave them alone, then we won't have to come attack you. They're like, le- they need to leave us alone. So it's like, it was better than like some stuff you see from the same time period where it's like, oh no, like Indians are the, are just the bad guys. Like they're just the the evil savages, right? So right. yeah, it, it it was a little bit better than that. But I'm just picturing I I set up a tent in your front yard, and you're like, dude, uh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, just uh, gonna figure out start farming the land here. It's a nice space you got here. Nice to meet you, neighbor. Neighbor, this is my land. Like you start like fighting me, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I bring in a bunch of friends. They like break in your windows and stick over like your one of your bedrooms, and like right. your space gets like less and less. And I'm like, hey, we just got to get along. Yeah. You're like, leave. <laughs> So at some point it was kind of that. <laughs> yeah, or it's it's like you set up a tent on my front yard and I'm like, "Hey, what are you doing? Like that's my property." And you just kind of like look around and you go, "Boy, isn't it isn't this great? There's nobody living here. Like this is just frontier land." 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's my it's my house. And you're like, wow, look, completely uninhabited. This that's wild. <laughs> right. Because it's almost again, this is definitely that thread of white supremacy we always talk about with British imperialism and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like they saw native peoples as not less sophisticated, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, humans, almost as all as, almost like they saw them as advanced animals. Like, isn't it remarkable yeah. what they've figured out? And they need to leave now because we need the space for, you know, real stuff. Yeah. Like, it's there's definitely that thread. That actually ends up being, like, one of Davy Crockett's, like, big things that he was fighting for when he was in Congress was squatters' rights, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm. But With respect to the whites squatting in native land or yes. natives still staying yeah. in white? Oh, okay. Okay. Because the, the, the movie definitely tries to paint him as a friend of the natives. Even though he yes. fights Red Chief and all that kind of stuff, Red Stick and all that kind of stuff, but right. Uh, the one thing here they mentioned in this first part too that I thought was worth mentioning, uh, they mentioned Mountain Dew, and I'm like, okay, oh yeah, that's obviously not a horrible anachronism, and obviously the soda pop was not yet in, invented, but I guess I maybe had heard this but had forgotten. But do you know what Mountain Dew is in the context of? Yeah, Mountain Dew is moonshine. Yes. So yeah. especially, uh, yeah, so... That's what the soda is named after. The soda is named Mountain Dew, like, after the... It's like a nod to moonshine, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Honestly, it's kind of interesting, too, that, no, the company, Mountain Dew, that makes the pop today, or soda, depending on which part of the country you're from, that's why I was saying soda pop, uh, it's a Tennessee <laughs> company. So uh, Mountain Dew didn't come around until 1940, but it was created in Tennessee, which is kind of that oh, okay. fitting. It's not just like a it's it's actually even like specific to that region, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, that that makes sense. And then well, and they they drink some too when he goes and visits Andrew Jackson when he's trying to convince him to run for Congress or he tells him that he wants him to run for Congress and he they drink the moonshine and he pulls it out of the like the old school like big jug and he said, "Oh, I can't keep this in the decanter. It'll eat the bottom out of it." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, there's no fooling around with that stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so the first part is basically him battling the Red Sticks or Red Stick Chief and just kind of getting them to submit, which they then finally do when he beats Red Stick in one-on-one combat. And that kind of basically ends the first the first part, right? Right. Which is obvious that that is not historically Didn't accurate. Happen. That's like, all made up. That did right, not happen. Right. Davy Crockett did not mono e mono trial by combat himself to figure out who was going to win the creek the creek war like that that's not true <laughs> so what about too so we, we they intro him just as a character in general like they send off to go get him you know and he's he's trying to stare down a bear like he's literally trying to like stare a bear to death and he's like well i did it with something else before and then like say it's almost kind of funny. And again, you kind of get the show is almost made for kids, which makes then sense where, you know, they don't have the budget for the bear, but they show Davey just like jumping into the bushes and you hear the scrape and he comes back out, you know, made a little yes. bit of a busted jaw. But the, the implication is he just basically killed a bear, a bear with his bare hands. And is there, so is there any, okay, obviously I don't expect there to be any truth to him fighting bears, but like where do those kind of stories come in with this mystique of a young Davy Crockett? So those stories are all, books and stuff that were written about him while he was alive but most of that is when he's which i'll talk about later on but during his during his time in congress he was like okay. a big big time self-promotion guy and also like the whigs 
who were really interested in defeating Democratic Republican candidates were big time promoters of Davy Crockett because they they basically like he already kind of had this like mythological status and then he would lean into it and then it would build a little bit more and then he would lean into it more mm. and it was like it was like this snowball effect where he became you know it was he he was like America's first celebrity politician and so yeah you know they're writing all these stories about oh yeah he could grin a bear it's like what what's grinning a bear oh he just you know smiles at it and you know that it just submits to him or what like these these like wild stories yeah it's it's only it almost in a way that can't even happen anymore like the, the person that's coming to mind is like a john mccain you could see if john mccain had existed at the same time and had the story of being a pow and someone who was willing to stand up against his own party you can almost see a mythos to that level developing around someone like a john mccain but i just don't think that thing, kind of thing is possible these days in the, in the same way yeah Okay, so the the second part, I'm probably going to jump in here and talk about Andrew Jackson then, because the second part does jump forward a couple years when we see an already president Andrew Jackson recruiting Davy to run for office, right? Yeah, so I, I, have a, I have a couple things between the end of the Creek War and that. So, so something that I thought was interesting, Andrew Jackson was on, you know, he, he had joined the army as an active duty soldier, but like... After he was in the Creek Wars, he still had time left on his contract, basically. And he didn't want to have to finish his time. So he just, like, paid a guy to come serve his time for him. Like, <laughs> it, was like it was only, like, a couple years or something like that. But he basically paid a guy to come and, you know, basically serve in his place so that he could go back to Tennessee. Which I thought was interesting. Which was a legitimate practice at the time, right? Not a shady thing. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Like the we, the Civil War, we'll see that a lot. Yeah, because you know, and for that guy, it's like, oh, okay, I'm basically getting paid twice. Like he's gonna pay me to serve out the last couple of years of his enlistment, and then the army's gonna pay me to be a soldier. So I'm, right. I'm making like double money. Right. So it's kind of like a good deal for him too. Right. But yeah, in the sh- in the movie, we see him like he goes back to civilian life and is just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to be here with my family. And they're like, well, you, you know, if you're not a politician, then the evil lawyer guy that's, you know, greedy, he's going to, he's going to win. And you're the only man that can beat him because of, you know, because of the notoriety that you have. And he's like, oh, shucks. Well, I guess if, you know, if you really need me community, I'll do it. It's like, no, like he, after he left the army, he went like right into additional public service stuff and politics. Like he was a justice of the peace. He commanded a unit okay. of the Tennessee militia. He did take a few years off from that public service to do some capitalism. Uh, he ran some businesses and made some money. But then like it was his idea. Like he wanted to be in the Tennessee General Assembly. Like he funded that himself. Okay. And he wasn't like the poor nobody either. Like he was a successful businessman who was also well-known and had, you know, for his exploits in the Creek Wars, he was not the, like, aw shucks underdog that they show in the movie. Right. Now, he was probably popular because of these stories, but it was also a well-crafted narrative, not necessarily who he legit was, even though there was some truth to these stories. Right. It was the narrative and then also his populist views. So, like, he wanted lower taxes for poor people, he wanted, like I said, squatters' rights, so the rights of people who were settled on government land to either be able to buy it or have it be given to them. Like, he had these ideas that were very popular among the 
poor rural constituents in Tennessee where he was running. So it was like, you know, the stories of his his exploits plus the policies that he was pushing made him very popular and also he had a lot of money to run a political campaign. Which yeah, they wouldn't the movie doesn't give you any indication that he had any kind of means. He was just kind of like popular. Right, because it because it skips that whole it skips that whole time. He basically was straight from oh. money, and now I'm running for for general assembly and in reality that was like uh, 5 years, 6 years something like that. Which actually all that all that makes sense too is then why an Andrew Jackson would see in Davy Crockett the perfect ally because they probably aligned with a lot of those kinds of things being a populist and kind of more from a poor background like they were they almost had a very similar story. Right. They're like both down home folksy fighting the Indians together. Tennessee boys. And right. Oh, and yeah, I I don't know if I even mentioned that, but he did serve under Andrew Jackson in the Creek Wars. That's how they met each other. Like that's how they that's how they knew each other. Well, that's and, that, and that's in the show. I don't know if we actually said that. Right, yeah, right. That is, yeah, that yeah. Is in the yeah show. that's yeah. that's in the that's in the movie too. And and that's and that is true. Like he did serve under Andrew Jackson. They fell out later on, but yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, we will get to that then too. I'm curious to hear about that. So when we last talked about Andrew Jackson with the Battle of New Orleans and the Buccaneer, we kind of just left it there, which is 1815. So I kind of wanted to then bridge the gap in what Andrew Jackson was doing after the Battle of New Orleans up until we see him in the show as president recruiting Davy Crockett to run for office. And you'll be able to talk about how accurate maybe something like that is. But so we mentioned the Battle of New Orleans was kind of did make Jackson a national hero in 1815, kind of going forward. And so essentially in the years after that, he just became the de facto guy in charge of the defense of the Southern United States. So mostly that meant dealing with the natives and just anything in the South kind of, it was Jackson's purview or whatever you would say. But so, you know, treaties with, wars against, that was all kind of part of Jackson's domain in the late 18-teens, you know, early 1920s. And because we don't have, I feel like this doesn't necessarily fit with this movie, but I kind of want to talk about it at some point. So this is going to be when I'm going to talk about it. So we don't have any movie on our list here early that talks about Florida. There's no early Florida movies. So I'm going to kind of use Andrew Jackson to talk about Florida a little bit because it is kind of this unique thing. We know we know it was kind of owned by Spain and we have all the Revolutionary War stuff going on that Florida is just not really involved with any of that. Right. Even though during the Revolutionary War and a few years before, it was actually British and not Spanish. The British had won it in an earlier, it was part of another treaty, just so many wars and treaties and trading territories. Anyway, so during the Revolutionary War, Florida was actually British controlled. And then part of the Treaty of Paris that, you know, ended the Revolutionary War yeah. was to give Florida back to Spain. To the Spaniards, right. Right. Kind of makes sense. If you're the U.S., you're like, um, yeah, we'd rather not have that British territory. Like the Floridians don't necessarily want to be with us, but they need to go back with Spain or whatever then. Yeah. And side note too, Florida basically means like full of flowers or flowery in Spanish. So something along those lines kind of makes makes, makes sense there. So the people in Florida didn't really feel then any kind of kinship with the other 13 colonies. They didn't really trade a lot with them. It was almost kind of an, an autonomous little area here that dealt with Europe, Spain, Britain, all that kind of stuff. It really didn't have much to do with the colonies. So when the colonies rebel, even though Florida is also a, essentially a British colony at that point, it didn't have the same 
kindred spirit with with the rest of them and so wasn't really interested in uh rebelling against the british or having anything to do with any of that so when the spanish take control back it's not really well policed the spanish don't have a strong presence there they just technically own it so it becomes almost kind of this almost becomes a wild west in its own right where you have any escaped slaves in the southern united states are finding themselves in the florida or if you're the creek indians and you just lost, lost to andrew jackson and you don't have any parts to go they would go down to florida and that's even where the seminoles kind of come from so seminoles are not like this tribe that goes back a thousand years the seminole were essentially a new tribe in the late 1700s early 1800s because seminal just means okay roughly runaway so it's almost like this new tribe that kind of just develops through consequence of european intervention and the natives that live in florida now have kind of reconsolidated into a new new seminal tribe that wouldn't have existed 100 years before i didn't know that i guess I, i had always assumed that seminal was like yeah, the name of a tribe like the Creeks or the Choctaw. Or no, whatever. no. Yeah, it's huh. it's more of a newer amalgamation. Yeah, yeah. So, but then you would have a lot of border skirmishes now between this chaotic Spanish Florida and the southern United States. So, escaped slaves going to Florida, the newfound Seminoles or newly formed Seminoles would maybe do little raids up into farms into southern Georgia and stuff. And so it was just kind of like, again, kind of a wild west little area over there. So, who do you send to go deal with it? Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, right. And then so you get, like, again, all this is, this is a way oversimplified version, like always here. But you do have the, there's basically, this leads to what's called the First Seminole War. It's kind of a mess. It's kind of war crimey on both sides. You get basically, kind of like what you're saying with the, that, that uh, massacre at Fort Mims, where, you know, Jackson's crew will win a battle at this fort against a bunch of, you know, escaped slaves. And then in retaliation, the Seminoles go up and kill women and children in U.S. territory. And so that has to escalate what Jackson's doing. And so basically it's just a full-on, you know, war with the Seminoles here. You got Spain is mad that the U.S. is going into their territory. Congress is kind of not sure what to do because, like, Jackson's probably actually doing more than he should because Florida's not ours. Why should one of our generals be going into Florida, which is sovereign Spanish territory, when we haven't declared war against them? And so it's all a very complicated uh, situation. Basically, at the end, Jackson kind of gets away with it, and Spain ends up selling Florida to the U.S. to kind of wash its hands of the whole situation, and that's how Florida becomes a U.S. territory. And this is all during the Monroe administration, which then actually does not indirectly leads us to the Monroe Doctrine. So you think about Jackson kind of pushing the Spanish, getting the Spanish to abandon Florida. And then James Monroe can just be like, and you know what, Europe, we'll stay out of your affairs. You stay out of our affairs. This is our hemisphere. You don't have if anything, you don't have any reason to be over here. Or if we do, if you do, you will consider it kind of a hostile act. And right. that's kind of, that's, that's the Monroe Doctrine. Then all that kind of rolls into 1824, so about nine years after the Battle of New Orleans, uh, and Jackson first runs for president, this time unsuccessfully. So he actually, in 1824 election, did get the most electoral votes, but again, it wasn't a two-party situation, so he didn't hit that magic number, and so that's when it goes over to the House. And in the House, you kind of have the... Uh, again, I forget what the third side was, but basically the third place person sides with John Quincy Adams 
Right. So the the Congress ends up elect, even though Jackson got the most electoral votes, he didn't have a plurality or plurality or whatever you call it. Didn't ever, didn't actually hit fifty percent. So the other two parties combined, John Quincy Adams is elected president. And a lot of the concerns were they were they were definitely almost kind of scared of Jackson that he he was a little bit too much of a demagogue, which is that word I always have to look up because it's I don't use it often enough, but it basically just means you talk a big game and say things that sound good to the common people, hence that populism, but it's all kind of just a lot of talk and maybe technically doesn't really have a good foundation in reality it's just like what the people want to hear and you can't actually back it up or it's kind of just bluff and bluster so you're just kind of a demagogue you're talking to rile up the crowd to vote for you but you don't like there's no real there there and so they were kind of concerned about jackson being that which is why they combined against him to to get him defeated but that just rallies jackson's supporters even more and he basically immediately like right after he loses in 1824 essentially immediately starts running for the 1828 presidency like without missing a beat and this was still a time when you weren't really supposed to campaign actively for yourself that was still kind of considered untoward so martin van buren is basically jackson's guy right they even basically even start they established the democratic party still the one that's around this to this day is basically founded as supporters of andrew jackson and building this coalition, this nation, nationwide coalition to support Andrew Jackson and carry him, him through to winning in 1828, which incidentally uh, does mean that the Democratic Party in the United States today, which, again, I'm kind of surprised this is what I read online, I, it, but it, it seems possibly legit. It says it makes it the oldest surviving political party in the world. Oh, okay. As far as like the actual, the actual is the same entity. Now, yeah. again, parties ebb and flow and they have they don't if you look at their party policies there's probably little to nothing uh in common with today's democratic party but as far as the right. entity itself it did begin around this time and i don't know if i want to talk about this necessarily or not but it's honestly hard for me not to see andrew jackson as just kind of a competent version of trump he's this rich <laughs> like a a rich populist guy, yeah, who rallied mobs of supporters, and right. and the same toss. Any anybody who wasn't on his side was seen as some human. He would boot federal employees and replace them with people loyal to him. He was a states' rights guy, but also thought the best way to carry that out was to have a strong executive. And the opponents of Jackson at the time were calling him King Mob, as in he right. was the guy yeah. who was in charge of the mob. I mean, he was the first president to veto legislation. Not because he thought it was unconstitutional, just because he disagreed with it. Which, again, right. we see that as normal today. But before that, you didn't veto it just because you disagreed with it. That wasn't your role as president. He vetoed it. He's like, nah, I, I disagree. You all voted right. voted for this? I say no. Right. That wasn't really yeah. a thing before it. So he was, he was definitely one who made the role of presidency more powerful than it had been. And, you know, that's kind of been a theme throughout. Almost every president in history has made the presidency stronger than it was before. I always think of Woodrow Wilson as being a big jump in that. But Andrew Jackson was was definitely one as well. The Supreme Court was, you know, basically making these rulings about native land and saying like, well, hey, it's native land. We can't mine our resources. And Jackson's just ignored them and did whatever he wanted. Like he wasn't, he didn't care about what was supposed to happen. He cared about what he could get away with. Like I said, there's just he's just very, very Trumpy, but was way more competent. Although definitely his two years or sorry, his two terms as president 
there's still plenty of problems. So you get to 1830. So I guess it'd be the middle of his second term. And they do pass the Indian Removal Act, which is basically, again, we mentioned Florida is now new U.S. territory. Well, and you got all these white settlers along this land. Jackson was a big expansionist, which does come up in the movie. He talks about we got all these people and no place to put them. We just got to keep expanding west. Like we see that in the movie. That's accurate to who Jackson was. So there had been debate for you know decades on how to deal with the tribes in what was now the United States. And Jackson basically was on the side of, you know what? They can't have their own autonomous land where they govern themselves because you can't have a state within a state. We can't say this is Alabama, but then inside of it, there's another state. No, Alabama's a state, so Alabama rules Alabama, which you can kind of see the logic in that, but it just doesn't take into account these native tribes and their rights to yeah. you know, exist. So yes, Indian Removal Act, which actually then goes of, over like the next uh, several years, actually extends into Van Buren's presidency, but this is where you get the Trail of Tears, right. where all these natives are forced out of the southeastern part of the United States to west of the Mississippi. Over 60,000 natives were forcibly removed from their homes, about 4,000 dying on the road because obviously they didn't really care if they made it or not. It was just, you just got to keep moving and get out of the land where the white people want to go. Which is why there's a big push to remove Andrew Jackson from the 20. <laughs> it's because this is kind of his right. his big thing. Almost his equivalent to building the wall. Like it, 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 like I said, Andrew Jackson was kind of Donald Trump. Let me uh, fill in the gap there then between... Um, okay. Because then, you know, Davy Crockett is on the opposite side of that. Oh, right. He's, he's, he's now president. So yeah, let's see how Davy Crockett fits into this. Yeah. yeah. Right. So like we said before... Andrew Jackson and Davy Crockett knew each other from their time serving together in the army. And they were initially kind of like buddies with each other in the movie. It makes it sound like, well, it doesn't make it sound it, it, you know, explicitly Davy Crockett says, Oh, I never considered running for national office, which is not true. Like (laughs) he had his sights set on Congress. It, (laughs) It actually, in the movie, it makes it seem like simple, like, oh, Andrew Jackson convinced him to run, and then he did, and he won, and then he was a congressman for a while. And it was, like, (laughs) way more complicated than that. So the rift between Davy Crockett and Andrew Jackson actually began back in the 1820s when Crockett supported a Whig candidate, uh, which Whig is W-H-I-G, the political party, basically the political party that wasn't the Democrats. So he supported a Whig candidate for governor of Tennessee, which Andrew Jackson didn't like because Andrew Jackson was a Democrat. So he, you know, that was like, oh, okay, it's like a black mark um, on their relationship. And then strike two, he also ran against Jackson's nephew-in-law for Congress in, Mm. I believe it was either the 1827 or 1829 election and beat him. So just to real quick give... Uh, Davy Crockett's record for elections. So his first, the first time he ran for Congress was in 1825, and he actually lost. Hmm. Then he won in 1827, won again in 1829, lost in 1831, then won again in 1833, and then finally lost again when he ran. His last election was in 1835. So that's one, huh. two, three, four, five. That's six congressional elections, and he won three and lost three. Oh, interesting. So when he was actually in Congress, he wanted to, his big thing was squatters rights, which was, 
It was for settlers on government land, but that government land a lot of the time was like land that had previously been taken from native tribes by the government. And then it's like, oh, this is government land. And then settlers would move in and, you know, live their farm there. And basically Davy Crockett wanted them to be able to either at a fair price purchase the land that they were already living on or just be given that land as their own personal land. Um, that was like his his big thing. He also, one of his, another like controversial thing that he was trying to accomplish while he was in Congress was closing West Point, the military academy. <laughs> What? Why? Because he thought that it gave an undue advantage to the like rich aristocratic people that could avoid or uh, avoid they could um, afford to send their kids there and then get military commissions. Mm. And he thought it was basically like a it, they were just like just like the British would have been doing, and they didn't want to be like the British probably, where all the rich people are the officers, right? And it was basically like they were churning out basically the people that would then be at the high levels of the military, which then they would be at the high levels of government, and then they would run the country. And like, if you look at in the early United States, just look at how many people that were, you know, either high level politicians or presidents, definitely military leaders, they all graduated from West Point. Interesting, which is why Andrew Jackson was so popular, because he was like the first commoner, quote, commoner to be elected president. Right? Yeah. So and Andrew Jackson opposed that, as did, obviously, like, the entire, the military and all the people that were, oh. had graduated from there and were, you know, currently sending their kids there. So it was, it was unpopular amongst the elites, but he was like, no, this is like an elite, it's like a factory that just turns out elites, and we don't need that. Like, you know, we should have a more, like, egalitarian, meritocratic society, not yeah. just one where if you're, if you're born to the right family and then you get into the right school because you were born in the right family, uh, then you can run the country. He's Genghis Khan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we talked about the, uh, well, you were talking about the Indian Removal Act and David Crockett was on the opposite side of that. So he opposed the forcible relocation um, of tribes. He was actually the only congressman from Tennessee to oppose the Indian Removal Act. And it was like, that was basically like not only the final nail, but like all of the nails in his coffin for the 1835 congressional election that he lost. Is that the speech we then see in the film? Is that the legislation that they're talking about when he comes in? They're trying to get him away from the vote and he comes in and votes the last second and gives that impassioned speech. Is that specifically the Indian Removal Act they're voting on? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he he basically objected to it on moral grounds, but his constituents did not like that because they all stand to gain a whole bunch of new land. Right. So that's interesting then. So the show's actually doing the show's actually doing right by Davy Crockett then and making him kind of the lone voice of reason for native rights in right. the early to mid 1800s when no one was doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In in uh in spirit Obviously, the the way that it happened was not necessarily like we see where he's like, you know, right comes like busting in or whatever. But it's yeah, like true. That's, but he did vote against it. Right. Right. He did, right. He did. He did oppose it. And he was the only congressman from Tennessee to do so. And it cost him uh, his seat in Congress. It basically it basically ends his career. Right. 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 Yeah. Because so then in um, 1835, that was also a presidential election year. So that was the end of Andrew Jackson's second term. And 
his successor was Martin Van Buren, who you said was basically like his uh, the guy who was campaigning for him during his time. Right. So then he, you know, is if he wins the election, is basically going to pass on the keys to the kingdom. And he's basically going to be Andrew Jackson 2.0. Right. And so Davy Crockett said, well, if Martin Van Buren wins and becomes president, then I'm just going to go to Texas. Because Texas was like, like, Tennessee was kind of the frontier. And then Texas was like the way frontier. Like, it, at this time, Texas was like fighting to be its own country. Well, Texas was Mexico. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was fighting to be its own country. Or sorry, yeah, it was it was fighting with Mexico, but it was technically part of Mexico fighting for independence when Davy Crockett goes to help out, right? Right. We'll get, which we'll yeah. get to all that here in a second. Yeah. yeah. And there's a there's a quote from Davy Crockett at the time. He said, "I told the people of my district that I would serve as faithfully as I had done, but if not, they might go to hell, and I would go to Texas." And he did. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. So in and then in, in late 1835, he goes to goes to Texas, arrives early in in 1836. And by February 8th of 1836, he had volunteered to fight for Texas independence and had arrived at the Alamo. So like less than a year after he ends his career as a congressman, he's at the Alamo getting ready to fight the Mexican army for Texas independence. So that's that's how that's how he ends up there. Um, so a quick little point of clarification, and then I want to also finish up Andrew Jackson's kind of timeline here. So not to not to call you out here, but so like the presidential election of 1836 was obviously in November, but the Battle of the Alamo was in the spring. So right. Crockett would have been dead before Bram Buren was ever elected president. Oh, right. But he knew that he won. Well, he was going to win. Like the election hadn't happened yet. Oh, oh you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was 1836. He's, he's yeah. still left knowing Van Buren was the next guy, but yeah, 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 yeah. But Van Buren hadn't won yet. Right. He left knowing Van Buren was the next guy and he had, and he had lost his, he knew he wasn't going to get, he, he, that he had lost his seat in Congress. Right. Okay. Because at this time, and I, I don't know why or like when this changed, but it, like these are all odd number years for the congressional elections. The Congress. No, I, I did notice that that was, that was, that's kind of interesting. I don't know. I don't know at what point they quote reset that but yeah you can just kind of see or, or different seats might have been different years maybe some year some seats were because now we have it to where every seat is up every two years right maybe it was still staggered a little more or maybe it was the odd year so it wouldn't be the same as the presidency and they've changed it the, so i don't know the history of all that yet necessarily but so one just to kind of put things into context for our timeline we're, we're going to talk about here in a few episodes about 12 years a slave well the whole the whole trail of tears we mentioned in the from kind of from the eight from 1830 to 1850 roughly the 12 years that Solomon Northup was a slave was kind of during that same time so just to kind of give you a context of while the trail of tears is going on is roughly when Solomon Northup who we'll talk about here after a while was enslaved so just to kind of know those were happening at the same time and then so yeah Jackson was reelected in 1832 uh, but the economy was horrible the there was an assassination attempt that oh. was again it's every, everything's funny in, in in hindsight yeah so basically i didn't even bring that up i forgot to bring that up yeah yeah so this guy tries to kill andrew jackson like his gun misfires and then jackson begins beating the man with a stick to the point that jackson's own security had to pull andrew jackson off the guy so the president didn't kill this would be assassin yeah and one of the guys to pull him off was davy crockett 
Oh, I missed that part. Okay. So they were <laughs> they were at this was early in 1835, and it was at a state funeral. It was at a, a funeral for a for a, a, a member of Congress okay. from South Carolina, and the, it was at the Capitol. And huh. so Davy Crockett was actually there, and yeah, went after both pistols misfired, and Andrew Jackson starts wailing on this guy. There's like. You know, a bunch of people jump in to pull it to separate them, and one of the people to jump in was Davy Crockett. Okay, that's kind of crazy. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention so we mentioned how divisive politically this time period was, and you know, everyone kind of rallying against Jackson, then him rolling right into his 1828 campaign. So the whole thing was so stressful that Jackson's wife, Rachel, who I don't think he mentions in the Davy Crockett movie, but he did mention by name in the Buccaneer movie. She died in 1828, just three weeks after her husband was elected president. And there's kind of some thought that just the stress of the campaign is kind of what contributed to her early death. And you also don't think about that means the whole time Jackson was in office, he was a widower, which you never hear about that. You think about, you know, we hear about Buchanan later being the only unmarried president. Right. Well, Jackson wasn't married in office. He had been widowed basically right after he got elected. Which is kind yeah. of, and I don't think ever remarried. And then after he, well, obviously he didn't, he did wasn't, he didn't run again, obviously in in thirty six. But uh, he then just kind of retired to his plantation, uh, the Hermitage, where he died eight years later. And that the Hermitage, you can still go visit it. It's uh, it's now just a museum dedicated to to Andrew Jackson. So yes, the final segment. I feel like this episode is going long, but they, there's a lot to talk about with David Crockett. Yeah. So yeah, the the last thing we'll try we'll try to maybe do a quick version of the Alamo here, but I don't I, right. I do want to kind of talk about the context here. So yeah, the final segment of the film is the Alamo. So the background here before Davy Crockett gets here is yes, Texas was part of Mexico, but of course initially this was all Spanish territory as right. far as you know Europe dividing up the New World. So in 1821, Mexico fights and wins its independence from Spain, very similar to what we had done against Great Britain. Right. And then as they're trying to basically populate their new territory in the 1820s, Mexico basically had essentially an open border policy, which allowed Americans to immigrate into Texas and take advantage of the farming land just because you just wanted to kind of populate your territory. I, I right. didn't read this, but I'm guessing that becomes like a tax based thing. Maybe if you if you empty land doesn't help the government, but land is being farmed, sends taxes to the government. That's my guess, maybe. So it was it was very popular. Tons of tons of Americans poured into Texas, knowing that they were becoming Mexican. Like this, they were leaving the United States and going to, to Mexico. move to Mexico. Right, right. So, but the Mexicans, Mexicans, one didn't like slavery, and two were kind of hoping everybody would become Catholic. But neither of those things happened. So the Americans are bringing in slaves into Texas, and they're not converting to Catholicism. And at some point, after not too long. The Americans that have moved to Texas outnumber the Mexicans in Texas. So Mexico is like, um, okay, uh, we need to kind of cut that off. So no new immigrants. We, we're going to kind of close the border back off. We don't want you coming in anymore. And we're going to raise the taxes on the people who are there. And so now these new Texans, which are kind of starting to have a little bit of an identity of we're Texan. We're not, we don't feel Mexican and we're not really United States anymore. We are Texans, uh, which again kind of ripples to this day. If you think about Texan kind of having this independent streak within the United States. So anyway, they're now mad that Mexico is kind of cracking down with taxes and stuff. Uh, what's funny too is uh, the video on YouTube I watched kind of mentioned that 
it was a lot of rough and tumble people who were maybe disillusioned with the United States and everything. So he basically the video joked that, yep, and America wasn't sending its best and brightest across the border. Oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah. In, into Texas. So in 1833, uh, the new Mexican president elected is Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, which, of course, we always kind of know him by Santa Ana, but it, right. that was just kind of where he was from. So he's pretty aggressively authoritarian, like basically becomes a straight up dictator, cancels the Mexican Constitution, and he's basically the dictator of Mexico uh, in the 1830s. And from the beginning, one of his big things, though, is that's the Mexican state of Texas, and we're tired of these, basically these white people have moved in, and they're acting like it's their land. This is part of Mexico. And so Santa Ana is getting pretty aggressive against them. The Texans had been fighting about, you know, things that they didn't like. So this whole Lone Star mystique of Texas kind of starts to make sense when it's basically Mexico land, mostly populated by white farmers who don't want to be part of Mexico anymore. And Santa Ana's trying to obviously fight them over it. So fighting breaks out back and forth. Texans do well at first. Mexico has to send in a bunch more troops and ends up surrounding a bunch of these troops in this old uh, mission, old Spanish right. mission of the Alamo that had been used as a barracks for several decades at this point. Right. And leading to the 13-day siege of the Alamo. And so, yes, then, so, so why don't you go from there, how then Davy Crockett ends up at the Alamo. Right. So he ends up at the Alamo because it's, you know, he's with that group that was fighting for Texas independence. He arrives on, in, on February 8th. There is a... Uh, as they're surrounded, like we see in, in the movie, they are kind of trying to send out messengers, but not all of them are getting through. And even the ones that get through when they meet people, it's like, well, we can't, we don't have the, you know, we would need to get our army together to like fight through the Mexican army to get there to rescue you. So they were kind of trying to hold out as long as they could. And they just, they almost just like barely didn't make it. I don't, I didn't write, I didn't have down what the exact date is that Sam Houston actually makes it there with his army. But it's not that long mm. after the Battle of the Alamo. But basically, they were under siege um, from artillery, and you know, our artillery fire was being fired on them the whole time. And they were the Mexican army kept like moving their lines closer and closer so that their artillery would be more and more accurate. And there were actually a couple of successful attacks from the Alamo where they would you know drive back their lines and they would come back up and they would drive back their lines, which they kind of show in the movie. Like where, uh, you know, there's like the one scene where you see like one cannon being set up, you know, close. And Davy Crockett is like, oh, they're not as far away as they think they are. And he like gets his, you know, Bet old Betsy, his his long rifle and uh, like him mm -hmm. and uh, and Georgie both like smoke a couple of the Mexican soldiers that are there operating the cannon and the rest of them like run away. That was kind of like the I felt like the the film shorthand version of. Yeah, there there were a few successful attacks that did push the Mexican lines back a little bit, but then eventually the Mexican army, you know, they just, you know, all out assaulted and the battle only lasted 90 minutes and everyone inside the Alamo was killed, including Davy Crockett. Uh, and that was on March 6th, 1836. And did I read correctly that he basically wasn't killed in the battle, that he was basically executed after the battle because they didn't take any prisoners? So... There are there are differing accounts. No one knows for sure. Okay. So basically, there are eyewitness accounts that say that he went out fighting 
that he was there are eyewitness accounts that say when when they showed up that he was dead you know surrounded by you know like a a bunch of dead mexican soldiers but then there is a journal that was written by a mexican soldier who said that he saw him captured and then executed after the fact there were for sure america or uh, you know texan independence fighters in the alamo that were executed afterwards whether or not davy crock was one of them is still a matter of historical debate oh, okay um, i i think it's kind of like a 60 40 like he probably was captured and then executed after just like the the evidence is like just a little bit more substantially a little bit more credible on that side okay but it's no one is ever going to know for sure because like one thing that i saw was like well yeah of course people that were like saw him that were then in america might have wanted to just perpetuate this like legend that he you know went out fighting so even though they would you know they were like verified eyewitness accounts that they might have had a bias or wanted to, you know, push the legend of Davy Crockett. But yeah, no one no one knows for sure, and we probably never will know for sure. But his body was burned along with the rest of the people that were killed there. And, you know, no one knows for sure where he's buried. Like there's a memorial there for him, but it's like no one it's not like there there's a grave that has Davy Crockett in it. Like it's his remains were right, right. just kind of disposed of. And then he was uh basically is like he was massively famous in his own time but then his legacy after he was dead just like kept on it was persistent and then the reason that he was actually so famous today you know more so than his stories and stuff at the time but is because of Walt Disney because of the the movie the show that we're watching now oh when Walt Disney built Disneyland just like we talked about the Disneyland connections to Jean Lafitte with Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, Davy Crockett also has a connection to Disneyland. One of the areas of the original Disneyland theme park was Frontierland. And so Walt Disney right. basically had his researcher, he was like, go find me information on like some good stories or, you know, figures that we can kind of highlight here in Frontierland. And they came back with Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Huh. So they made the Davy Crockett movies. They sold, you know, the the outfits, the coonskin caps. The price of raccoon pelts actually skyrocketed <laughs> in the 1950s during this time because everybody, like all these these kids that are watching the show, like they want to dress up as him. You know, they want the coonskin cap and like ten times more expensive than before the show came out. The price of raccoon pelts skyrocketed. So, like, the reason huh. that he's as big a figure today is just as much his exploits from the time as it is Walt Disney making these movies or the, these this Crazy. miniseries that they, you know, turn into a movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because it's like history within history within history. Oh, no, right. I, yeah, exactly. That's that's when, uh, when the stories about history have their own history kind of thing. Yeah, so I was thinking earlier, too, it's like, oh, man, if only he had won, if he been reelected to congress in 1835 he would have had no reason to go to texas and he'd still be alive today <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's where again so then just just to wrap up the texas side of things that kind of extends past crockett's life here and everyone kind of knows this the whole phrase remember the alamo because these 
189 men held out so long against the, I've heard varying numbers, but roughly 1,800, I think, was the most common number I saw for the number of Mexicans that were were attacking them. Anyway, they hold out for, it's a 13-day long siege. They do ultimately all get killed, but then the Texans, led by Sam Houston, who were really adamant now, and actually what I read too was right around the time of the siege of the Alamo is when Texas basically declares their independence. They still have to fight for it, just like the United States did, but they're now basically declaring their independence and continue to fight for it and then do ultimately win their independence from Mexico. Right. But it's a little different than, say, Mexico's independence from Spain, the United States' independence from Great Britain. This is a little different because, remember, this is such a short timeline. It's different when, you know, the United States colonies have been populated by British citizens for 150 years. Texas was Mexican territory that had been populated by people from the United States for, like, 15 years. Right. So all of these people, basically, when they were leaving, they were declaring themselves independent the thought immediately was, we want to be part of the United States. So even though, yes, Texas Texas was technically its own country for like 10 years, the only reason it took 10 years to become part of the United States was just the bureaucracy of the United States. Yeah, working out the details, the United States didn't want to just annex part of Mexico and go to war with Mexico over it. So it kind of became this whole, Texas immediately wanted to be part of the United States because they, they were the British descendants, like... It made sense based on who was living there, but it took a while because the United States had to basically get the political will to kind of actually go ahead and do it, which again, it took about a decade. So Sam Houston was basically the president of Texas before the United States did finally annex it, and it you know eventually becomes a state that way. But so yes, Texas was technically an independent country, but for like a decade, and it never really actually wanted to be. It was just kind of waiting its turn to become part of the United States. Which is kind of crazy if you think about it. The only reason te- the only reason Texas is part of the United States is because Mexico had an open border policy. Yeah. The end. Yeah. So many white people moved into it that then those white people decided, actually, we want to be part of the country we just came from. Right. Sorry, Mexico. Yeah. And th- this connects to the whole Six Flags over Texas thing. So, like, mm. the-, the theme park Six Flags is called that because the first one was in Texas. And the reason that it's called Six Flags is because over the history of Texas, at time of recording, it has had <laughs> six, it has had six, you know, it's it's been controlled by six different, um, flown six different national flags. So like... Like Spain, France, Mexico, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah Spain, France, uh, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the United States, and the Confederacy. So those are like the six entities ah. that have controlled Texas over its over its history. Six flags over Texas. Interesting. Yeah, this all this this back and forth between Spain to Mexico to Texas to the US and then a couple years later the Confederacy like it's uh that's why it's the the name Six Flags is called Six Flags. Um and then also worth noting too just cuz we do see I mean it's even it's even come to violence in recent years where people you know white supremacists in Texas get mad at the Mexicans being there. It's like, um, there was Mexicans in Texas before there were Texans in Texas, which is kind of a phrase that I've heard before. And you can see how it was true because Texas was part of Mexico. So if your family lived in Texas when it was part of Mexico and your family never leaves the area it has lived in for generations, 
you just become part of the United States and then have a bunch of white people telling you to, quote, go home. And it's like, are you, are you kidding me? I bet <laughs> Texas is Mexican. It, it, yeah, anyway, so. Yeah, there's also the the urban myth that Texas can at any time, if it wants to, separate and become its own country. Oh, right. That's, that's not true. Uh, like, Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> that's literally what the Civil War was about. Like, no state can just go be its own country. Like, that's not how it works. Once you're right. a state, like you're, <laughs> like it, it, you're, you're a state. Although it does have, there is a thing where if Texas wanted to, it could split itself up into multiple states. Mm, okay, which would it, like if they wanted to, they could, you know, become like actually CGP Gray has a really good video about it. But if if they wanted to, they could basically like quintuple their power in the Senate because they could just become five states and get you know and have uh, okay. ten. Uh, Senate seats instead of the two that they have right now. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Let's see. Okay, so then the last few things I wanted to wrap up here was just with a couple more historical figures we saw at the at the end of the Alamo here. So uh, William Travis is... Actually, do we see William Travis in the movie? I think we do. He's the one who's actually... He's like the... So th- there's Jim Bowie. Bo- Bowie is sick. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the yeah, inventor of the Bowie knife. And then they got... He's sick. And so, yeah, isn't William Travis the guy who's like actually out like telling everyone what to yes. do, where to go. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So William Travis is in charge by default because he was essentially second in command and, and Jim Bowie was uh, laid up sick. So Travis is calling the shots. He's the one sending out calls for help that are, you know, fruitless. And he was only 26 years old when, uh, when he died at the Alamo. That's wild. Uh, he famously wrote, actually, I have a note here that I want to read it in full because it's not very long. But it's uh, it's the letter William Travis wrote, uh, basically calling for help. Uh, it's a famous victory or death letter. So basically, during the siege in uh, in February of 1836, Travis addressed this letter to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. So I just this dang it, this is just really good at kind of encapsulating what these men were going through at the Alamo. Okay, fellow citizens and compatriots. I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis. Pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty badass. I was getting chills kind of reading that there. They also, they show that in the movie where they get the offer, basically the surrender or die letter. He starts reading it in Spanish and David Crouch is oh, going to look at him. He goes, yeah. he goes, oh, okay, basically it says surrender or die. And then their response is they shoot the cannon. And that's like the last yeah. scene right before the actual Battle of the Alamo. Yeah, so you can almost say that he would have written that right after that. And then uh, the other thing I think that letter highlights is what does this sound like? This is Texans viewing themselves as American, not as Texans. Right. Yeah. Like that's very obvious with it. Again, it's only it's only been 
it's only been 15 years since these people were even allowed to kind of move into Tex- uh, to Texas, um, or Tejas, as the Mexicans would have would have called it. Okay, two other notes here. Jim Bowie. So we don't. We're not going to go the full bio of Jim Bowie. I do want to talk about the knife, though. So I did. You read the story? I read the whole story on the knife. He did not invent the Bowie knife. Oh, really? Did he just popularize it? Yes. So there's even. It's even a better story. So oh, okay. Again, this is the short, short version of Jim Bowie. So uh, yes, he was at the end of his life the sick, laid-up commander of, of at the Alamo. But he had been a slave trader when he was younger, even dealing with Jean Lafitte. Uh, Lafitte would capture slave ships, capture the slaves, and then, like, sell them himself. One of the people who would buy and sell slaves from Jean Lafitte was Jim Bowie. Huh. So the knife that bears his name <laughs> was not made or designed by him. So he was in a fight in 1827 that made national news. There was a duel, and like neither side liked each other. And I, I think I think I read some, one source that he was in the duel, and they like just kind of both agreed to shoot in the air, and honor was done. Or maybe it was he was the second for another guy in a duel. Anyway, people who did not like Jim Bowie were at this duel, so quote legit duel. But then a fight kind of breaks out after, and people are like, you know what? Let's just kill Bowie now, and we can say it was all part of the duel. And it's basically they try to kill Bowie after the duel uh, in like cold blood. And he actually gets, like, shot, gets impaled, like, literally impaled, but survives, because this is 1827, he doesn't die for another nine years at the Alamo, gets impaled, but then successfully defends himself with a big, long butcher knife and disembowels his opponent. And so this fight makes, and he survives, you know, has, like, a months-long convalescence to get back to health. This fight makes national news, and men around the country and in Europe, start going to blacksmiths requesting, make me a knife like what Jim Bowie used. Right, which is, is basically, for, for listeners who don't know what a Bowie knife is, is basically a, it's like a hunting knife with this, like, a really wide blade. It almost looks like yes, like a cross between a, like a hunting knife and a cleaver, yeah. It's a big, heavy, long knife. So, we don't actually really know exactly what Bowie used it was described as essentially a butcher's knife right and so basically what they came up with wasn't this is exactly what jim Bowie used it's basically what blasphemous started to make to fulfill these requests and so they almost came up with an opportunity to come up with a big long badass looking knife that became popular as the Bowie knife because everyone was requesting it but it's not necessarily what Bowie actually used himself but it's now to this day still known as a Bowie knife because this, that's when it was popularized after he, he gutted, literally gutted his opponent with, uh, with a big, long butcher knife and became famous for it and survived getting impaled. I mean, yeah, it, oh, man, it's a different time. It's a different time. I'm looking at the story right now. It says, so he got hit over the head. So he gets, he gets shot. Oh, yeah. And hit over the head with, with he the got pistol, pistol whip, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Then he gets stabbed with his sword cane. And it gets stuck in him because the guy is trying to pull it out yeah. and he can't get it out. So it's basically like, ha ha, now, you know, like, what are you going to do now? So he pulls out his knife, kills the guy, disembowels him. That guy's dead. Then with this dude's sword still sticking out of him, he's shot again and stabbed again by another person, but is able to make it out of there somehow and then survives those wounds. So he was shot, pistol whipped, stabbed shot again, stabbed again, and lived. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is some Rasputin stuff right here. Yeah. And yeah. killed his attacker with his giant knife. That's so awesome. So, <laughs> hence the reputation of Jim Bowie is born, and why it's definitely worth having the knife named after him, even if he right. didn't actually craft it, design it, or invent it or anything. But that's yeah. that's why it's named after him, which is almost cooler than him designing it, if you think about it. Right. And then the last and last thing, this is actually become, quickly becoming one of our longest ever episodes, so the last thing I wanted to mention here was uh, the red flag, which I don't... I don't know if it actually shows up in either last week in The Buccaneer or in this Davy Crockett movie, but it was mentioned in a couple of the things I looked at. So when Andrew Jackson was attacking, I forget the name of the fort, but he was attacking a fort in Florida with a bunch of fugitive slaves, the slaves raised, again, I hate calling them slaves because they were technically escaped in Freeman, but they were fugitive slaves. Um, right. They raised a red flag. So we all, everyone knows a white flag means surrender, but they raised a red flag Likewise, did the Mexicans attacking the Alamo carry a red flag? So, do you know what a red flag means as as is opposed it, to a white flag? Is it like the opposite of surrender? It's like, we're not going to give you like no quarter, no mercy type thing? Well, 100%. So, yes, it basically is letting the other party know, don't even bother surrendering. We're going to kill you all. Right. It's just kind of putting that out there on Front Street. Just so you all know the situation. Yeah. This is the to the death no quarter given situation, which is probably just used for intimidation factor that <laughs> if you're faltering, but if anything, why would you do that though? All you're telling your enemy is, I guess we better keep fighting because we're dead anyway. So, but I think it's more just like an intimidation to like scare them and we right. lessen the morale is probably yeah. my thought, but that's what a red flag means, which again, I, anyway, I don't think we see it in the movie, but it's, it was mentioned in two different sources. I was reading both at the Alamo and in Florida talked about the red flag. Okay. Definitely a lot there. Fascinating figure in Davy Crockett. Andrew Jackson is also... And so we always talk about potential candidates for our probable tournament at the end of all of this for the most interesting person in American oh, history. Davy Crockett and Andrew Jackson for sure are both on there. Right, right. And man, I mean, even like a Jim Bowie is, yeah. is kind of crazy there. I mean, if, you, if we look at just the Alamo and that fight are two crazy things about Jim Bowie there. So definitely some strong candidates uh, going forward there. Whew. So, yes, thank you for listening. Next time, we're going to look at another iconic figure, although a fictional one, when we discuss the legendary Zorro. Zorro.